If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Su. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. Like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and drama. I'll be joined by some special guests that'll be helping me share the real stories behind the most iconic moments in the show. So do not miss this special takeover of Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. Art of the Hustle is a production of iHeartRadio. You're listening to The Art of the Hustle, the show that breaks down how some of the world's most fascinating people have hustled and learned their way into achieving great things. I'm your host, Jeff Rosenthal, co-founder of Summit. And today on the show, I had the pleasure of chatting with Kimball Musk, Kimball is an entrepreneur, investor, a chef, a restaurateur, and a wildly impactful philanthropist. His mission is to pursue an America where everyone has access to real food. He was named a global social entrepreneur by the World Economic Forum, and Kimball is the co-founder and chairman of three real food companies that are rapidly scaling across the U.S. The Kitchen Restaurant Group, including Nextdoor, Hedgerow, and The Kitchen serve real food at every price point. The restaurants source from American farmers, stimulating the local farm economy to the tune of millions of dollars a year. And this nonprofit organization, Big Green, builds permanent outdoor learning garden classrooms in hundreds of underserved schools across America. His tech-enabled urban farming community, Square Roots, grows hyper-local, real food year-round while empowering the next generation of farmers. Kimball joins us to talk about how, in their early 20s, he and his brother Elon courageously built out their network through cold calling some of the most powerful people in the country, serving on the board of Tesla and SpaceX, and how he scaled his nonprofit, Big Green, to reach over 350,000 students. Please enjoy my conversation with Kimball Musk. Kimball, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Where in the world do we find you today? I am in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. Uh, I've been here almost 20 years, and it is just a wonderful place to call home. But especially during the pandemic, it's a wonderful place to office out of. I consider myself very, uh, very thankful. That's awesome. I uh, I also spend a lot of time in the mountains, but you know I'm in Los Angeles at the moment, and I am so envious of you know you having a back door like you do to go out into nature right now. It is it is uh, truly um, a gift. Totally. And, and you, so you've been there for 20 years, but how long have you been in the U.S.? I've been in the U.S. Uh, since 1995. And I was in Canada before that for four years studying. And I came from South Africa in 1991. 
Amazing. And where, where did you study? I studied at Queen's University in, in Kingston, Ontario. It's a great, great school. What did you study? I studied business. I, um, I kind of regretted studying business, I'll be honest. I, um, I think if I had, had, could do it all over again, I would have studied economics. It's a little bit more philosophical. And business was really, I mean, when I say really, I'm not guessing here. They, were, they told me while I was studying it that they were really training us to be middle managers in corporate North America. And that really wasn't what I wanted at all. I mean, I, I think in my whole life, I've, I've worked for someone for maybe combined 12 months and just never really thrived. Universities are, and it's such an interesting subject nowadays because, you know, pre-COVID, everyone was, you know, we should have free university. And now with COVID, no one's even able to go to university. I really didn't uh, get that much out of it. I, I enjoyed the social experience thoroughly, but for me, the learning was 99% uh, in the real world. Totally. And and where are you from in South Africa? Are you from the city? Are you a country boy? Like, where'd you grow up? Yeah, I grew up actually in a, in a pretty intense place. It is a, uh, the city called Pretoria, South Africa. It's kind of like the Sacramento of South Africa. It's the capital, but no one ever has heard about it or goes there. The, the other thing is that it was the center of apartheid. We, I grew up, the social way to hang out was protests. Uh, and, you know, when you look at the Black Lives Matter protests, there's a lot that I relate to there. Uh, we would go do anti-apartheid protests. And I, I came of age, you know, my teens were late 80s. So yeah. the protests that I were part of were very joyful and very musical oriented. So um, the really violent protests happened in the late 70s, early 80s. And then by the end of the 80s, it was fairly sure that this was going to be over. And it was, uh, I wouldn't call it celebratory because there was still a lot of stress around. In fact, there was enormous stress around it. It was more just more positive. And, and there was there was a lot of violence in protests because protests just by their very nature attract a lot of crazy people. But it was protester on protester fights. It wasn't the police. And in fact, in South Africa, if you got, in, if you got into an altercation with the police, I mean, you're screwed. So yeah, we, you stayed very far away from the police. Were considered quite. You just you just don't go there. You don't even go. You don't go there for safety. You don't go there for protection. You don't go there at all. And when you were in those protests, and um, and I think there are some frustrating and sad similarities, unfortunately, with the fear of the police in America. Yeah, I totally hear you. And and in terms of the solutions. You know, like things like divestment, things like, you know, boycotting, you know, when, as I understand it, when Coca-Cola stopped, you know, sending product to South Africa, that was a real moment in the movement on both sides. And it's been really inspiring to see that, you know, in the U.S. in the last, you know, eight months, this new generation, you know, express themselves and their point of view and the world in which they want to see and live in. And, you know, I'm, I'm actually very much against defunding the police. Yeah, I think that, that is a very bad idea. But I am against the police unions, which are very similar to the, to the teacher unions, where if you're a bad cop, you don't get fired. You're, you, you, in fact, you're protected against getting fired. Um, and so you get someone like that guy that killed George, George Floyd, who had 17 counts, uh, complaints against him, mm -hmm. just gets shunted and shunted to worse and worse precincts and eventually kills someone. I mean, yeah. that, that is a union issue. That is not a funding issue. Like the equivalent of the rubber room for a teacher, you still get to have a gun when you're a bad cop. Yes, exactly. It's brutal. 
in teaching, we see something similar where you simply cannot fire fire someone that is bad at what they do. And and every single person who has ever worked a day in their life, you know, when they're around people, they know that some of the people on that team are are really good at what they do. And some of those people are, they might be good at other things, but they're not good at that particular thing. And uh, you constantly have to manage that. It's the same with police. If you uh, if you expect every policeman to be an A plus policeman, you don't understand how humans work. You're going to have A plus players, A players, B players, C players, mm-hmm. and then players that should not be on the team. I hear you, and it's like I don't, you know, I never thought that this was going to be where we would take this conversation out the gate. But I totally, I totally appreciate your perspective here. I think you know, defund the police. I also don't agree with literally. Um, but I do agree with reallocating budgets for mental health services. You know, like the, if the same group that is supposed to deal with like the most high stress, high risk situation is also supposed to deal with like my teenager having like a psychotic break and intern them in a hospital, like that often is what ends up happening is like there's nowhere else really for people to turn to for these things. And, and it's a force that's not trained necessarily. to. It's like, again, we're just asking a lot. Like when you go to Iraq and you have soldiers, you know, in charge of, you know, war and then peace, it often doesn't really work out that way because these are typically different skill sets, right? I mean, I completely agree with mental health challenges and how different that is. But we have to be very careful about, you know, there are people talking about, hey, we'll send a psychiatrist along with every 9-11 call. It's like, no, no, uh, psychiatrists will not agree to that because it's dangerous. Totally. So, so like, you, these are people that don't understand or, 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 not, or are not allowing them to appreciate or remember how humans work. I, I, don't, I think that actually everyone knows how, know how humans work. They just choose to forget when they're, when they're thinking about other people's problems. Well, one, one thing you have, you know, unique and singular exposure to is the brilliant, you know, generational entrepreneurs who are at heart problem solvers. So, you know, like when you're pursuing a process, whether it's with your ventures or your, you know, friends and family's ventures, you know, I know that you don't think anything is impossible. And I mean, check the record, like it's like, it's not a debate, you know, I've seen the unbelievable things that you guys have built adjacently for like the last, you know, 15 years, it's been unbelievable. But I know that you really shave down the pedestal? Like, I mean, simplify it for us a little bit, whether it's this issue or it's like, how do you, how do you approach innovation? I know it's broad, but I imagine you have some thoughts. No, I know. I, I love it. I mean, I think the, 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 what I love about Big Green, our nonprofit where we work in schools, we build learning gardens and schools. These are these beautiful outdoor classrooms that teachers can teach science through the growing of food. It's the beds are, it's a very different way of thinking of gardens. The, the traditional way of gardens is you put them on the corner of the school or you might give them across the road, give them a couple of acres and give them more land. And my attitude was, no, you need to make this really easy to teach it. And so we, we brought it right outside the classroom, right next to the playground. We raised it up 18 inches. We don't allow a fence around it. And it made it easier for teachers to teach it and enabled them to be more spontaneous in their teaching. No fence around it meant that kids would spontaneously play in the garden. And this kind of comes back to my, my uh, deep respect for human nature, but that respect doesn't mean that I have a high regard for it. It means that I, I really understand how humans work. I, I, think, I think I do. I have a good, a good understanding. In other words, if a teacher is teaching a class and wants to be outside, but the garden is across the street, there's a lot of friction in that teacher's mind that says, man, that sounds hard. I'm just going to teach inside. 
you know, I live in Boulder, Colorado, right on the mountains, and I can go for a hike anytime. And that makes my life really easy to go for a hike. But if I, if I live just one mile further, further east, it's much harder to go for a hike. And so just that sort of respect for human nature, how humans think. And so I, I really wanted to, you know, to take the friction out of using the gardens was to think, put myself in the mind of a teacher and say, well, how would I spontaneously do this? And then uh, I also put myself in the mind of the principal and said to myself, you know, most principals think that gardens are a real pain in the ass. You get a passionate parent or a passionate teacher and, you know, they, they, they play their violin over and over and over again. And they finally agree to let a garden happen. And then that garden becomes a real eyesore within a year or two because that parent graduates or the teacher retires. And it's just you got to put yourself in the mind of that principal where they don't disagree with having a, a learning garden outside. They just have done this before. They've been around the block and these things fall apart. And so we changed the mindset and said, okay, this is going to be the most beautiful thing on the school ground that the principal will be most proud about. Hmm. And how do you do that? And so that's when we sort of designed the product, which is the learning garden, which would be quite beautiful. You go to biggreen.org and you'll see the, uh, what they look like. They're, they're, quite, they're quite beautiful. And then I said, okay, what does it take to manage these gardens? And the rule of thumb was you need one to two people per school to run the garden, run the curriculum, engage the kids, teach them nutrition, help the, the teachers uh, teach their lessons outside. And, you know, if you, live in, if you live in a magical fairyland, that works just fine. But if you actually live in the real world, there are 130,000 schools in America. We're going to do two, two, two people per school, really? Okay. Imagine success, success would be in every school. That means we have 260,000 employees. That doesn't work. Most of yeah. the big companies in the world don't have 260,000 employees. So we would, we would actually have to have an aspiration to be the biggest, one of the biggest companies in the world, which we don't have. That's not an aspiration. Our aspiration here is teaching kids about food and connecting them to real food. So I, I challenged the team and I said, okay, how can we get that down to 100 people? And we could not figure out a way to do that. Okay, how could we get it down to a thousand people? And we could not figure out a way to do that. And we managed to figure out a way to get it down to 2,600 people. And we did the math. We literally did the math. And we said, okay, if we can get a team of seven people to run 100 schools, then you run the math, it's about 2,600 people around the country. That is something was, okay, could I imagine building a 2,600 person company? That's pretty hard to do, but that is within the realm of possibility. And so how do we get seven people to run 100 schools? We said, okay, well, if, we, if we just focus on metro areas where there are 200 or more schools and we focus on doing 100 schools in that metro area within driving distance, we can have one leader, we can have three garden trainers that work with the district and the schools, we have three maintenance and project managers that can build the gardens and maintain them in partnership with the school district. But the reason why we don't need even more people is because when we work at a hundred school scale, all of a sudden the district will participate. They'll partner with us because if you, if you work at one or two schools, the district is like, well, it's not worth our time. But if you work at their scale, they don't want to be left out. So you start to realize that once you get to a certain scale in a city, you need less people. And that's how we sort of figured out a way to, to scale the idea of school gardens, which were already successful if you looked at them in one-off one off level. You can double the intake of fruits and vegetables of kids. You can improve their test scores by 15 points on a 100-point scale. It's incredible if you look at one school. 
But if you try and do it across 100 schools, or sorry, across the country, it doesn't really work. What we found is you can actually make it work, but you, but you need to do 100 schools at a time. Wow. I love that. And there's so many things that this, I think, empowers kids with. Harking back to empowering ourselves at scale, these protests that we're seeing, you know, Killer Mike, I saw a talk he was giving in Atlanta during the last, you know, set of this, this time last year when, you know, an unarmed black person got killed by an officer. You know, he was like, how many of you have your own gardens? How many of you can honestly sustain yourself with your own food? You know, like if you if you have that, you have utility, you have you know, self-autonomy, you have the ability to sort of power your own community and life in a way that you really can't when you're completely dependent upon, you know, someone else to provide your calories quite literally. And then when it comes to like, you know, you are what you eat. I mean, like, it's just so huge. Like we feel the difference, especially as we get older, you know, about what we put into our body and how it ends up impacting, you know, our, our mental, physical performance. And it is a savage inequality, just like lack of education, lack of, you know, nutritious food, because I mean, our brains literally can't work as well if we're hungry in a classroom, if we're eating, you know, shit from a convenience store. We have this malnutrition where we actually have a lot of calories, but no nutrition in it. So you become obese and starving at the same time. It's actually a thing. It is awful. And uh, the idea, as you, as you just said, the idea of empowering people to, to grow at home during the pandemic, big green has implemented a program called Big Green at Home. As you know, many of the schools are closed. Many mm-hmm. of our schools are closed. And those gardens are now converted to giving gardens, so they're growing food for the community. But they also serve as an as a education hub, so families can learn to grow at home. And they can, as you just said, empower themselves to learn how to feed themselves. You know, this is not going to solve all of their nutritional needs, but the food literacy improvement that they're going to get and they're going to give their kids is amazing. And Big Green at Home has been taken on by tens of thousands of families over the past few months. Mm-hmm. It is an extraordinarily successful program. And it came out of, uh, so uh, when the pandemic started, we run a national holiday called Plant a Seed Day. And it's the first day of spring. And this year it was March 19th. And you couldn't imagine a more difficult day to have a have a national day because March 16th was when all the shutdowns started happening. Yeah. And it actually was pretty wonderful. We got about 250,000 people around the world to pledge to plant uh, a seed at home. And it's the first day of spring. And what we actually found was, while we expected it to be quite challenging, it turned into a uh, surprising positive because all of a sudden we had everyone at home. And they were they started to reach out for more materials because – Plant a Seed Day was a one-off event, and it was everyone get behind it. It was pretty. It's obviously it's a great it's a great holiday, but um, they actually started asking us for more content because planting a seed wasn't enough, and they wanted more information on planting carrots or planting radishes or what do I do when when the, I can harvest the carrots? And Big Green at Home uh, came out of Plant a Seed Day, and we're going to continue it all the way through to Plant a Seed Day in March. And our goal is to get millions of people growing at home over the next year. And we are already at about 250,000. And this is a very engaged community. And it's wonderful to see how excited people have been to to engage in gardening at home. 
Um, it has been a, a side effect of the pandemic, which I think is a positive side effect. And I, I believe that it will, it will stay with us after the pandemic is over because the food literacy and frankly, just the joy of growing at home, the food tastes better, connection you get with your kids. Mm-hmm. You know, no one's gonna want that to go away. That, that's just, that's a great lesson we're coming out of, we're getting out of this pandemic. We'll be back with more Art of the Hustle after the break. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people people in an unscripted, unvarnished way is getting to to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hermosi, Layla Hermosi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come along with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and, of course, drama. I'll be joined by some very special guests that'll be helping me break it all down. From award season nightmares to fashion week insanity, you'll get the real stories behind some of the most iconic moments in the show. The Rachel Zoe Project definitely changed my life and career in so many ways. The show definitely captured some of the most amazing moments, but also some of the absolute worst. I made the show for all the fashion lovers out there, and I'm so happy that people still watch it and love it so much. So do not miss this special takeover on Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Not believe I just said that. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. Well, and it's also interesting for me teaching a toddler at home. And, you know, like I could care less if he can write letters. I don't care if he can do basic math, but I do care that he understands the concept of planting a seed and, you know, it flowering and blossoming and something growing, whether it be something he enjoys like a flower or something that he can actually eat and consume. Uh, But, you know, not to go philosophical with plant a seed, but it's like, I feel like this is a rich dad, poor dad lesson that so many people miss and we don't plant enough seeds. Like we spend our money on frivolous bullshit or on things that like, you know, improve our lives in the short term. But when really push comes to shove and you examine people and what they do with their 
disposable income in America, I wouldn't say that that's like the prevalent culture. But, you know, I think that having mentors, frankly, I mean, I'm happy we're friends now, but we weren't when we met. Like you certainly were my mentor and you really were kind and invested, you know, some time in me and my organization and friends. And, you know, like- I think you can't was, tell people that I'm older than you? I mean, you said you were older than me. <laughs> you're a teenager in the 80s, bro. What am I supposed to do? You look younger. When you started, I was, I was only three. <laughs> yeah, you were like I told I told my family pack your stuff we're going to Canada. <laughs> um, no man, but I just love that this is something that, like you could dedicate your time and your energy to literally anything, and I think it's just such a powerful and profound thing that you're thinking about and working on. Thank you. You know, I, I love also the stuff you do, and I've, I've been thinking a lot about the Utah Summit community you've built, and and to me, I think that this is a interesting time where, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about Boulder and Denver, where, you know, there's such a desire now to move to the middle of the country. And, and I don't know if it'll last post-COVID, but it will have an effect post-COVID. And, um, you know, this the real strong desire for community is, is, is quite, it's quite powerful to, to see it. It's wonderful to feel it. You know, in Boulder, we're entertaining a visitor at least once or twice a week that'll come into town to Look, look at buying homes or trying to figure out a way to move to sure. and really looking for a sense of community when they're stuck in, uh, in LA or New York or, or, or San Francisco where it has been really tough. And I don't want to necessarily uh, uh, benefit off that, but I do love the idea of, I mean, frankly, Boulder and Denver is a wonderful place to live. It's kind of given, given a, a second-class citizen status in America. And I've, I've lived here for 20 years. I love that people are starting to open their eyes to the communities that are being built inside the U.S. versus just on the coasts. Totally. I, I think we were fully coastal living with Summit in the first like three or four years of the organization. It would be like SF, LA, New York, London, Tel Aviv, Madrid, whatever major city, Berlin we could go to where there was a heavy concentration of entrepreneurs. Similar mathematics to how you were thinking about like how to scale learning gardens with a smaller amount of people while you'll go to a heavier concentration of, of those, you know, school districts, communities, et cetera, um, at first to establish the org. I think that what was really crazy was like in 2010, we actually moved to Nicaragua. And because it was that era, we had Gmail and Dropbox and Google Docs and all these things that didn't exist for entrepreneurs, say, four years before. The point is, is that like by getting away from sort of the hustle, bustle and distraction of the city, there was this phenomenon of us doing such better work, learning about such much more interesting stuff, discovering more interesting in global music that would end up becoming the trends that would dominate those cities, the things that, you know, historically you have to be in the city to get like first access or first looks to. I think that there's been a quiet movement empowered by sort of the digital world that we also live in, where like, you know, people like yourself who got that space initially have actually been benefiting from it for a long time. So I just think world's kind of catching up now. Yeah, I mean I definitely think Boulder and Boulder Denver and Austin are the two that are that people are definitely focusing on. I'm curious what, what are the areas you think in the world, not doesn't have to be the US, where where are people gravitating? 
Well, I mean, certainly if you look at like the Zillow page views, uh, you really, you really have a data driven analysis. I mean, I've been, I've been curious about the same thing too. So like, if you look at the Zillow page views and you look at movement of people, Colorado's on fire, you might know that already. Colorado Springs actually is the other city that has a ton of people moving to it. Ohio is on fire. Like, yeah, Ohio, Columbus, and like all these cities in Ohio, people are moving. I think a lot of it too is just America is be- America is becoming an international country. We're all moving back in with our parents. We're going to have uh, multi generational households again. To your point, it's like access to nature, you know, like better quality of living for the affordability. And like, dude, you can't like it's multi million dollars to have a house on like the west side of LA that's a teardown. It's ridiculous. And whereas if you look at uh, Utah, we, where I was just there actually uh, to, to just see how it was doing. It's a beautiful community. You know, everyone is very socially distanced, very thoughtful. It's like, feels like a little mini Sweden. You know, everyone is very, very thoughtful, socially distant, but life goes on. Well, and there's also the benefit of not being like you get it. Maybe it's a false sense of security, but you get a sense of security in a town with no streetlights and no stoplights. And like, Everybody knows the count of cases in like the, the, the like 10 square mile radius through like the community phone tag line. We actually had that in Boulder where we, we had a COVID outbreak at CU, so University of Boulder. Yeah. But the, the town is small enough where we know, we actually know the houses that the outbreaks came out of. You know, it's literally to that level. And there was a county order giving the police authority to oversee these 16 addresses and and if you happen to live in one of those addresses, uh, there'll be extra scrutiny. And it was amazing. Within a, within a few days, even, the COVID cases dropped like a rock. And uh, and I think that's because we're in a small town. I wouldn't call it small. It's probably a, a big, big town, but it's small enough where we we can we can get that focused on on uh, on managing the, 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 the pandemic. Totally. And I mean, you've been in this, you've had a vision for this for a long time. Your, your first, I don't know if it was your first business, but I know one of your first businesses that, that you and Elon had started Zip to, it was online city guides, right? Back in like 95 to 99. Yeah, we started in 95. It was a, so right now what you see on Google Maps or Yahoo Maps, we ended up getting acquired by Yahoo and became Yahoo Maps. That had never been seen by a human on the internet before my brother and I what does you know, put it up and built it. And, and we, we went to this company called Navtech, which had been building, had put $300 million into building the data and the mapping for Hertz, Hertz, the rental car company. And, you know, they were building that never lost system that never had not been launched yet. And it had been, they'd been working on it for years and no one had ever seen it except for, you know, inside the company, Navtech. It was amazing uh, uh, technology. And my brother is an incredible engineer, and he—I think he's one of the world's best engineers at the time. Though we we were just hackers, uh, he built a, the first uh, vector-based mapping, which which is a way of saying you're simply transmitting data back and forth. You're not moving uh, graphics back and forth. So you just you're sending data, and the data updates on your on your lap, on your web browser, and then it changes the the map on your browser, which is how all, all, all mapping is done today. And prior to that, it was all you know uploading images. Here is an image of a map, and um, my brother figured out a way using Java at the time, which I believe might still be around. But it was the first interactive uh, tool on the internet. Was use, figured out a way to take the data from Navtech, and uh, you 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 load the page, and you just load the initial Java applet, and then you can move the map around with your cursor, and you can move, zoom in, and you can zoom out, and and it have no no latency and no download issues. 
Mm-hmm. And we were, we were, my brother and I were literally the first humans to see this on the internet. And we eventually showed it to venture capitalists and they got excited and funded us. But um, it was cool. It was cool to have that stamp on the internet. I love that. And around that time, you told me a story once that, and it was like so in passing, but it always stuck out to me that when you guys moved to Silicon Valley, you literally got a telephone book and started cold calling people that sounded like technologists. Oh yeah, that was actually in, in university. We would read the newspaper together and we would find interesting people in the newspaper. And then we would dare each other to call that person. And we'd take turns. And it's actually surprisingly easy to reach someone. You'd be amazed. It just takes a lot of courage. So that sort of that daring each other pr- pr- process, you know, we, we, we met a lot of very interesting people. We met a lot of people that frankly were not that interesting, but you know, cause we were South Africans, we were immigrants, we didn't know anyone. And we found it just such a powerful way to get to meet people. But, but what's very interesting is it didn't work when we, after we had graduated. It worked very well while we were students. And people were so welcoming and, and open to meeting. They underdogs. They couldn't believe they were getting a phone call from you. Exactly. We were kids from another country that were in university. And the fact that we were students made them very open to meeting with us. Uh, and we would call some of the most powerful people in the in the country, and 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 uh, in, in, whether it was U.S. or Canada, we just had to be able to get to them because the the ask was take them to lunch. So mm-hmm. if we could get them to let us take them to lunch, we'd learn from them, we'd get to know them, and they would, who knows what, what could lead from it. And some of the most interesting people we knew when we were younger were those folks. They, they were they were actually not necessarily technologists, but they were they were very interesting players. A lot of politicians. Uh, uh, very very cool. Once we graduated, we continued to do it, and it was an immediate shutdown. They were like, nope, now you're in the real world. Why are you calling me? Interesting. And, um, and we, we, it was quite a, quite a difference. So I would really encourage anyone listening who's a student to take advantage of that, of that time to reach out to people and the people you are most excited to meet. Believe me, you know, everyone's got to eat. So they, they, will, they will go to lunch with you if you can get to them. And uh, on a regular basis, people find their way to me because I've shared this story with other people and they'll get to me and, and, and I'll go to lunch with them. But, um, but it's not easy to get to me. When I, I mean, I said it actually is easy to get to me, but it's not easy to get to me in a way that I will actually have lunch. You, that, that takes a little bit of work. But do that. If you're a student, yeah. use your time as a student to understand that this is the time when people will give you a break. Art of the Hustle will be right back after this short break. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning, is connecting with people. In an unscripted, unvarnished way. It's getting to, to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. 
It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hormozzi, Layla Hormozzi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come along with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and, of course, drama. I'll be joined by some very special guests that'll be helping me break it all down. From award season nightmares to fashion week insanity, you'll get the real stories behind some of the most iconic moments in the show. The Rachel Zoe Project definitely changed my life and career in so many ways. The show definitely captured some of the most amazing moments, but also some of the absolute worst. I made this show for all the fashion lovers out there, and I'm so happy that people still watch it and love it so much. So do not miss this special takeover on Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Not believe I just said that. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. The entrepreneurial leadership, like the celebrated business stories in, say, 80s, 90s, was very much that sort of swashbuckling HBS leader. And then you had you know, the temple to the engineer with good reason, like you like for your, for instance, your bro or these, you know, other brilliant, you know, technologists that built these amazing companies. Ultimately though, it's creatives, right? Like the best engineers and developers are just the most creative people or they're creative problem solvers, right? My brother is an amazing engineer. And I honestly think that he's the best engineer in the world. He's the Michael Jordan of, of our century. And, and, um, and, and he, obviously he has a record to prove it. Um, and I and I get a I get a front row seat to watch him solve problems that, and I really mean it at an engineering and physics level. The world's greatest engineers and physics PhDs will say that is impossible, and he will solve it. That's different. That's a different kind of gift. Um, we think that um, obviously he's creative, and many many people are creative, and, and the world that we the technology has enabled creative problem solvers to leverage their abilities. Worldwide, you know, if I want to do something in, like you talked about Nicaragua, if someone wanted to do something in Nicaragua, pretty soon Starlink from SpaceX will give that person in Nicaragua more broadband than I get in Boulder today, which we sit right on on the fiber in in America, and it's embarrassing how bad our internet connection is. Sure, uh, that's gonna all get changed when uh, when SpaceX uh, has Starlink across the world. This is why I'm so interested on your perspective on like, it's just, and this is so helpful because you're, you know, like you're talking about the macro and like, you know, the, the fully scaled um, version of somebody taking a dream and turning it into reality and changing the world with it. Like not hyperbolically, but, but literally. And then you're also talking about like just the scrappiest stuff, like as an entrepreneur, like, you know, one, like the, the, you know, rolling the uh, idea of Big Green and these learning gardens and, you know, innovating and iterating on it as you were, you know, moving forward, but being super thoughtful, it wasn't ready, fire, aim, right? It's clear that you guys really thought about this before you started taking your shots. I think, I think that when we were younger, it was ready, fire, aim. 
Yeah. As we've gotten older, it is, I would probably say it's more like ready, fire, aim constantly so that whatever you fire at, it's really a, a small target. So you really, you want to fail as fast as you can, mm. but, but that process is, of failing is, is really a learning process. So that before you, let's use a rocket as an analogy, you really want to fail and, and learn all of the issues before you actually launch the rocket. Um, you know, you do a static fire, you hold it down, you, you have the engines each tested separately because you want each of those things to, to you want to find out which one is going to go wrong before you launch the rocket because that's going to carry a, a very valuable payload into space. And you want to make sure it's pointing in the right direction. And, and that's when you really put fuel on it and you, you put the rocket boosters on, you make it go. But but you actually want to learn all of the issues as much as possible before you press go. So it's a, it's a little different to... Yeah, ready, fire, aim. Yeah. I would say it's more like constantly letting problems surface so that you can knock them down before really committing at a, at a bigger level. Whereas I do think it, when I was younger, when you've got nothing to lose, you know, when you're, by the way, anyone in their twenties should be, should be taking all the risk they possibly can. If that's mm-hmm. one takeaway from this thing is you just don't realize how long life is. Life is so long that use your twenties and take all the risk you possibly can because you will benefit from that for the rest of your life. It may not yeah. be a potential positive outcome because you know, when you take risk, you got to risk the fact that you're going to lose, at uh, least financially, but you don't lose in terms of the relationships you, you take on, the what you get, how you get educated in, in the problems you're trying to solve. The it's a it's life life's life's lessons compound on each other. And the more you can do in your twenties, the faster you get that snowball running or rolling, the bigger and more interesting your life is as you get older. Yeah, it's, it's funny because it's like both taking those risks and planting seeds along the way, right? Like, yeah. which are all, all I the seed analogy because planting a seed, of course, is for gardens, but it's really for hope. It's a sign of of your your future. You're 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 planting a seed when you're twenty, when you when you're when you're going into university, you're planting a seed. When you graduate, you're planting a seed. Or what what are you taking on first when you're twenty five? You might take on your next uh, challenge. What is that? And and it should be about hope. It should be about you know, are you are you challenging yourself enough? Are you surrounding yourself with the most interesting people you can? Uh, be as humble as you possibly can, but be as ambitious as you possibly can, because humility gets you around really interesting people. But mm-hmm. ambition is what keeps you around really interesting people. They don't want you if you're if you're not ambitious. Totally, and I love the I love the Brian Eno saying uh, gardening, not architecture. You know, like it's to your point, you can, you can have as detailed of of plans and strategy and fail faster and experiment all you can, but you know, you can't like, I love with summit, I always would say it was gardening, not architecture. Cause like, I've never heard that before. That's a, that's a beautiful analogy. I didn't know where it was going. We just trim the leaves, let the plant grow. And you, and you, and you're harvesting all year long. And there's obviously, there's going to have some things that are out of your control, like bad weather. Sometimes things work out in your favor, and you 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 you're grateful. You're grateful, but but I love that analogy. Life is like gardening, and start early. Don't 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 wait until May or June. Start planting in March. Start planting whenever the season is right, and uh, and and get as many seasons in there as possible. 
Transitioning a little bit on the food side, I know that you know a lot about just, you know, the 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 future of meat. And I think about, you know, we have a hunting culture, not an agrarian culture. Like we we're we're mining the resources of the world, not so much, you know, like creating these evergreen gardens to not to not to beat a metaphor to death. But um, but you know, you you happen to be very close and Christiana, your incredible wife, um, to to the future of meat. Where are we? Like what's the time horizon? And do you think that we're gonna be growing like real meat in labs, or do you think that we're just gonna have incredible substitutes that people are gonna incorporate into their diets? Where where do you think this is at in 2020? Uh, you know, I think it's a very interesting year. So um the the Probably the most exciting company in alternative meats is is lab-grown meat. It's a company called Memphis Meats. Hmm. And they're actually growing chicken or, or beef or duck, and they're trying to figure out which one should be the, the, the product entry point. Um, and I, I've had the good fortune of being able to cook the actual chicken. I, in this case, was chicken breast. And it's amazing. You're just, you just looks like chicken, tastes like chicken, is actually chicken. And that is, that's extraordinary. No, no, no animal was harmed in the process. It's, per, it's just mind-blowing. And then also, even just yesterday, I went to try a, a, an alternative meat product that that is a, a, a vegan version of pulled pork. Uh, and it's it's um, uh, vegetable-based and without any of the processing that you might see in some of the other alternatives. And I, I'm a big fan of less processing is good, you know, just mm-hmm. kind of real food. I really believe in trusting your food. And the more ingredients or more processing involved, the more cautious I am. I'm not saying that all processed food is bad, but I, but I generally uh, have found less processed food to be better. I call it real food, uh, nourishing to the body, nourishing to the farmer, nourishing to the planet. You kind of know what you get. You know, you, what you see is what you get. I had this product yesterday, which was not processed at all. And it's, uh, it's, its base is jackfruit. And uh, I was very impressed. It was a slow roast pork with a Korean barbecue seasoning. And I was like, wow, I was... I was uh, very impressed. So I think we're in a we're a very interesting time. I think that the future of meats will include regular beef and chicken and so forth. But what I like about these alternative meat products is it puts pressure on the traditional industry to step up on ethics, step up on how they uh, uh, feed what they feed their animals, from antibiotics to hormones. Generally, we're we're headed in a good direction. That's fantastic. And do you think do you think we'll all be driving electric cars ten years from now? No, no, because they'll all be autonomous. Ah, good point. You really think in ten years, in thirty five hundred days, all these cars are going to be autonomous? Yes, I wow. think it's even sooner than that. Amazing. I mean, I for one can't wait. We play with designs that that don't even have a steering wheel, and we're not ready for that yet. But but it's fun to imagine what is a car when there's no steering wheel. Should you all face forward? Well, maybe you should all face each other. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's quite interesting. It's a different uh, world when you don't have to think about driving the car. So, so I think that um, autonomy is, is going to be within 10 years for sure, probably sooner than that. And um, what I love about 2020 has been, you know, I'm so proud of my brother and what he's done at Tesla. We're now profitable. We have an extraordinary path in front of us with the, the products that uh, the product lineup that he, that he's he's creating, and it's also motivating the rest of the industry to go electric, and that is going to change the impact on our environment in ways that we desperately need, and so we need to go faster. 
And uh, what are the major rev limiters? Is it like battery? Is it, is like, is it, you know, like manufacturing? Is it rare earth minerals? Is it policy? I mean, my brother announced the battery innovations that they're working on, but up until that, that point, it really was the batteries. So if you, uh, well, in, in Tesla's case, it really was the batteries. I don't think it was necessarily the case with others because they, they're at low volumes. But yeah. our, our battery plant in Nevada makes more batteries than all of the other battery plants in the world combined. Wow. And it is not enough to provide the batteries for our Tesla, just for the regular uh, demand of our Tesla cars. Mm-hmm. So we have to solve the battery problem. And so that's what we have been working on and we are, we're on our way. Well, I mean, you're, you're, you're very humble and you are a board member of the organization and have been deeply involved in certain. And I, and, and I, and I don't, you know, argue the credit is due where you put it, but, um, you know, I do think it's interesting just when I think about these companies that, you know, are in the family of, of Musk businesses. And I just, and honestly hosting this show, um, and, and this is maybe say a 30th episode where I've considered my friends and what they've built and how they've built them a little differently and the brand vision of these companies is incredible. Like, and you're like, the kitchen is fantastic. And the, and Big green, I mean, the way that you describe it, you're, you're always trying to civilize and, and bring whatever the innovation is to the form that is easiest and most fun and most sort of, I guess, enjoyable for the end consumer. Glad you mentioned the kitchen. So we have a, a restaurant concept called next door eatery mm-hmm. and, um, you know, COVID was, I've, I've always had this, this pet peeve. So, I love, I love our restaurants. I love our teams. But even in our restaurants where we, we, we're considered really well-respected restaurants, the service isn't perfect. You know, sometimes you want to order a round of drinks and you can't get attention of the server or you might want to pay your check and, and you can't get your attention of the server or you just want a quick meal and you kind of – and you just want to kind of get, get through your meal quickly, which is often the case with me. Yeah. And we have the supercomputer in our pocket that should be able to help you order your food – really whatever you want. And uh, the challenge with the restaurant industry is it's stuck in this legacy world of, of point of sale systems that are, that are literally 30 to 40 years old. Mm. And what I did during COVID with our team, which has worked out so well, is we built the ability to manage your order on your iPhone. So you show up at the restaurant and you order your food. We still have a server and the server lets you know about the menu, do whatever you want. But, but all of your ordering is done on your phone. So that you manage your order, you pay for your order, you order another round of drinks, all done on your phone. And it is the most convenient, most incredible thing. Next Door Eatery is a very fun restaurant. So we really love, uh, it's a very much a, a social drinking you know, restaurant. We have, we have a sort of two drink minimum uh, attitude. You know, if, if you come to our restaurant, we want you to have fun. You know, and if you didn't have two drinks, you, you probably didn't have enough fun. So for us, it's, a, it's especially during the pandemic, it has been about, hey, come here for your fun time. That has been wonderful and all done through your, through your iPhone. So we, we developed the technology. I think my brother kind of led the way on this, but, I, but, I, but I've been working in that same philosophy, which is we're not here to do this for competitive reasons. We're, do, we're here to do this because it's the right thing to do. And so the code base for, for the technology is now available to any restaurant company that wants to use it. We have a few restaurant groups that are using it. Awesome. And the idea is that it's really about a better guest experience. It's about a better server experience in a pandemic when you know too much interaction with the guests can, can uh, spread COVID. 
So it's it's better for the guests, even in a non-COVID world, but it's also a healthier way to run your restaurant um, during the pandemic. And and we we share the code base with any restaurant group that wants to use it, and people are taking us up on it. So it's awesome. And uh, next door eatery is about fun in a time when we all kind of need a drink right now. We all kind of want to maybe yeah. we can't gather in large groups, but we can go out with a friend and and connect. You know, do our part to be res- responsible during the pandemic, but not hide ourselves in the basement wrapped in cotton wool. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, one, thank you so much for taking the time to be in on the podcast. You're fantastic and such an incredible guy, and 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 this has been awesome. Um, I wanna I wanna go out with just you know like just understanding you just a little bit more. Um, you know, like you you just have done so much, and you know, so I want to know what what do you still do too much of, or what do you still want to like let go of like what still is you know something that you want to want to remove from your life and and that you're still you know figuring out and then what are you still seeking like what are the things that you you seek and that you want to bring more into your life at this stage that's a good question you know the pandemic is such an interesting time to reflect on yourself i'm sure everyone is doing that is is what you're doing the right thing is is what you know it's an opportunity to change if you want to you know i think that for me the the I'm really learning the wonderful value of being around just very talented and interesting people. So I've, I've heard this from older mentors of mine, where as they get older, they really start to appreciate people on their team. They're, you know, where I'm, I'm referring to in the work world here, you know, that sort of passion for people, not just, of course, attracting great talent, but mentoring them, training them, making them better. It's sort of the next phase for me as a, uh, thank you for saying I was a mentor of yours. I feel like I've always helped out younger folks as older people have helped me out, but it's a different thing when I, when I feel like actually this is truly what's getting me up in the morning and making me excited to go to work and, and sort of bring my A game. Well, Kembo, you're the best. Thank you again. Can't wait to see where all these things lead and you know anything i can do for you no job too big no job too small forever thank you jeff same same on my side i'm here for you anytime thanks for listening art of the hustle and uh, see you next time For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards. Like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. 
Rachel Zoe here, and we're going back to the Rachel Zoe Project for a very special takeover on my podcast, Climbing in Heels. Come with me as I take you back to season one to give you all the behind the scenes details and drama. I'll be joined by some special guests that'll be helping me share the real stories behind the most iconic moments in the show. So do not miss this special takeover of Climbing in Heels. It's going to be bananas. Listen to Climbing in Heels with Rachel Zoe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts.